Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, this is Dr. Heather Sanderson, founder of North County Natural Medicine and Marama, the first residential care facility for the elderly of its kind. And you are listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansons, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to spread the word of the objective data you can receive from a brain map and the positive results of training with neurofeedback. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You get to see some behind-the-scenes action because we I don't usually always sound as smart as I do right now. There's some editing that goes on in the podcast, but it really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Please give us five stars uh, on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not a, a subscriber, visit neuronoodle.com and sign up for our newsletter. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Dr. Heather Sanderson, founder of North County Natural Medicine. So, Dr. Skip, you connected us with uh, Dr. Sanderson. How did you hear about Dr. Sanderson? How are you? How are you guys connected? What's the background? Well, good morning, Heather. Thanks for thanks for joining us. My wife uh, happened to venture into brain hacking a long time ago, a few five, four or five years ago, and so through her listening of podcasts and hearing about people doing different things across the country. She came across Dr. Sanderson and then we contacted Dr. Sanderson and have been kind of consulting with her since, so I guess three, four or five years and some of it professional and some of it not on her end, non-professional meaning, you know, personal consultation for medical issues and such, but the world of you know biohacking is a wide pretty, pretty wide net and all kinds of fascinating aspects of treating health within that. Um, I thought Dr. Sanderson would be a great guest given our recent conversations about the FDA's approval of a pharmaceutical for treating Alzheimer's and knowing that she has uh, some treatment regimens that, that are you know, not non-allopathic and also with her new facility, but maybe even initially just get somebody on our show to talk about functional medicine. And we haven't really done that. And Heather, just, uh, you know, so for you to know, we do have lay folks. We started off, um, you know, talking about neurofeedback on the podcast. And so there's a lot of parents that are interested in how they can help their kids. You know, over time, I think we've added some professionals that are interested in what might be talked about. And uh, in particular, what, what Jay brings to the show for the, the EEG aspects. So we have some technical things being addressed too for practitioners. It, and just kind of maybe getting you going here. If you would, can you tell us about functional medicine and its approaches to health but I know my interest has always been kind of cognitive functioning, but I'll let you speak for yourself. 
Yeah, so what I love about naturopathy, I've always been interested in, in medicine and, and then functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, integrative medicine. These are some of the terms that get used somewhat interchangeably. And really, it's a philosophical approach to health and wellness versus a very disease-centric model. When I, I grew up in Hawaii, and I know you're up in Alaska, uh, most of us have seen sort of the effects of colonization, if you will, and the, how over a few generations, the health of a community really goes downhill or could went downhill with the advent of sort of Western culture, um, much more time sitting, less healthy foods, more processed foods. And what I saw growing up in Hawaii was that the people who were sick were not engaged in their communities. And then I traveled quite a bit, kind of thinking about what do I want to do with my life and going around the world, seeing this play out over and over again, really made me want to step up in a way and contribute in a way that helped other people engage, that helped them share their solutions for the complex kind of problemscape that exists in the world versus sitting on the sidelines because they are suffering with diabetes or heart disease or mental health issues or dementia. And so as I went through my training, I, I decided that naturopathic medicine sort of gave me the best foundation for how to focus on health versus disease. And I thought that was the right way to come at it. It also is more of a complex or integral system science approach, right? We're looking at more of a holistic landscape versus, okay, there's a symptom, so you take a pill for it. We want to take a step back and say, okay, what influences cell function at every level? How do we get every cell in the body performing better, closer to optimal, so that we reduce risk of all sorts of diseases? So that approach was very appealing. I went through the naturopathic program. And then on the other end of that, so as I progressed in my clinical practice, I was really curious about some of the more, the unsolvable problems. So things like autism, dementia, disease processes that were increasing in incidents really caused people to suffer in ways that felt very overwhelming and very expensive, right? When we have a, either a child with autism or an adult with dementia, that not only takes that person out of society, so they're not in the workforce, they're not contributing, but it also takes a caregiver with them. So from a societal perspective, this is extremely expensive. And it felt like one of the places where if there was a solution, it's going to really move the needle in terms of who can show up, who can be contributing to, again, the, this problemscape. And not to be really like negative about things, but I just, the world is facing a lot of problems, right? And we need so people who can create solutions. We need change makers. And so I see my job as supporting those change makers, supporting people, making sure they're he the healthiest they can possibly be so that they can execute that change in the world. And our, I believe at this point that one of the most squandered resources at this moment is seniors. Our seniors are at the height of their wisdom and experience, and they are put into homes where they are fed cake and ice cream, told not to get out of their wheelchairs or not to get out of their beds because they're a fall risk. And what they do is they just decline rapidly. And again, the financial cost is extremely high, but the social cost the fact that we don't take that resource and use it to educate our, our the next generation, our youth, so that they don't get that the inheritance of that wisdom and experience, I think is just absolutely tragic. And so reimagining what aging looks like so that we can harness that potential is really what I've dedicated my, my career to. In the case of dementia, 
If I can help one family not suffer the heartbreak that is the slow, long demise uh, associated with Alzheimer's at this point, I will have been successful. Uh, I mean, that is just an awful, awful, awful way to go for everyone involved. So I was intrigued by the work of Dr. Dale Bredesen. I studied with him in 2017, and I had been told by well-meaning instructors at Bastyr, where I went to school, and also in my training afterwards, never tell someone that you can reverse dementia. It is giving them false hope. It is giving their families false hope. And these were well-meaning individuals. So I sort of bought that. I believed that it was an unsolvable problem. I went to Dr. Bredesen's training and learned that that was not the case. I was a bit skeptical, came back to my office and then was on the list, Dr. Bredesen's list of people who had been trained by him. So sure enough, I had a patient named Linda who came into my office within weeks after returning from the training. And she had a MOCA score of two. So a MOCA for those who don't, under, who don't know about this is a way to assess cognitive function. It's the Montreal cognitive test and, um, it is a one page worksheet that a trained provider takes someone through and you identify the names of zoo animals or African animals. Um, you draw a clock, you recreate a box, you follow patterns, you uh, repeat words. So it, it basically takes you through several different types of cognitive function and including memory, but also executive function and sort of planning and, and understanding patterns. And that is a quick, easy way to sort of assess where someone is. So normal is over 26 and a two is extremely progressed dementia. And so Linda came in with her husband. I, her handwriting had been affected. I would start to ask her a question like, what did you have for dinner last night? Or how much exercise have you gotten in the last week? And before she could answer, she had forgotten the question. So Linda and her husband, her husband was very dedicated to this process. He was very excited about it, loved what Dr. Bredesen was up to, and he was all in. I, I saw her at baseline. She was a mocha of two. I saw her three weeks later, and she was a mocha of seven. Her experience had completely transformed. Now, she wasn't going back to work. She wasn't 100% better, but she had reversed her cognitive decline in three weeks. I recently, I had to go back to my chart notes because I was like, I'm telling this story and I'm not like, am I remembering this right? And sure enough, it's, it, it was three weeks later, she had a mocha of seven versus a mocha of two. What this looked like in her life was that she was bickering with her husband about something that had happened the night before. She remembered their drive. They were living in Northern Baja, I'm in San Diego. So they had had this long drive the night before. And she remembered that she was irritated with him about like where their passports were or something. And so she started like, telling me this. I mean, her experience, her husband's experience, their relationship was so completely transformed in three weeks. My experience of her was completely transformed. She could communicate. And we've seen similar progress at Marama um, where we have someone who went from nonverbal to now being able to say, I'm hot, I'm cold, that feels good, I'm hungry. But that difference in quality of life is profound for both caregivers and the, the patient experiencing dementia. Now that's when we're severely progressed. Imagine when I saw Linda and I saw what was possible, 
I couldn't rest, right? Like, how could I do anything else with my life other than make sure that everyone knew that this was possible for them and to intervene as quickly as possible when someone starts noticing decline? Because they might be able to avoid this, pro this progression that so many people think is inevitable. Can you speak to, and, and I'd love to hear more about Marama, I'm sure others would too. I know Dr. Bredesen has been compiling, you know, data and, and recently put something out that was on your site, then that's how I accessed it. Can you speak to that a little bit? And then also, we'd love to hear about Marama and how maybe uh, Dr. Bredesen's findings kind of helped, helped that along, or, or at least informed you on where you wanted to go with your facility. And I have a hard time keeping it at one question, but so there's that, you know, one, one and one A. Again, we, we were talking about Agihelm and, and, and the FDA kind of shoehorning this thing in. It, it sure reads like and feels like the idea is that, hey, there's nothing on the market that's going to help with this. And it's always been that way. And so I'm leading to another question here, too. But it's, you know, with the work of Dr. Bredesen and, and Dr. Perlmutter and, and folks that are that are you know, approaching this maybe for from a more functional approach and that the treatment for Alzheimer's is prevention, like starting in your 20s, 30s, 40s. I think that kind of ties back into your idea of community and just, you know, overall health. So I'll let you pick what you want out of that to, to proceed, but it'd be cool if we could hear about what um, Dr. Bredesen and your finding as well with treatments. Yeah, so Dr. Bredesen recently published a trial on 30 participants, I think maybe there were 25 that completed it, um, and there were three different treatment sites. Um, so three different providers were offering the Bredesen protocol for this trial. Now it's an observational trial, so it's not controlled. There were just patients going through the process and they tracked them from beginning to end. Now I have a similar trial going on in my office currently. So we're, we're still actually in the recruitment phase. So if anyone listening knows someone in San Diego, they do need to be able to show up in person at my clinic, we have three spots left. Um, for participants, for study participants. And we're doing a very similar thing. We're tracking from the beginning. Um, Dr. Bredesen's trial had a nine month intervention phase and we have a six month intervention phase. And then we follow a more intensive intervention phase. And then we follow what happens over the uh, preceding six months. So, or sorry, the, the next six months. So there's six months of intensive intervention and then six months where our participants can kind of do whatever they want. They can either stick to the protocol or they can come off of it. And then we see what we measure them again, measure cognitive function again at 12 months. So our, our tr uh, trial uh, design is slightly different, but essentially very similar that what we're doing is we're taking a, a chunk of patients who have measurable cognitive decline and we're taking them through a Bredesen pro inspired protocol or a lifestyle or functional medicine based protocol. And what we're doing is we're essentially looking at the what we believe are the causes of cognitive decline. So Dr. Bredesen's approach is very much uh, has the hypothesis is that the degradation in the brain is happening because of multiple things. So it's a multi, there's multiple variables that are influencing neurodegeneration. And these things can be toxins. It can be, of, of course, lifestyle, blood flow, exercise, sleep, oxygen to the brain, hormonal uh, levels, because the, those hormones certainly send signals to the brain about growth or degradation. Um, so we want the right signaling going to the brain. 
And then infections can cause more inflammation. So inflammation is part of this, certainly an inflammation from the perspective of maybe a microorganism load or maybe from traumatic brain injuries. There can be a genetic component. So we, we take this very comprehensive approach to what might be going on and we identify which are the variables for that particular person. And then we uh, address them. So if somebody has excess mercury, mercury is a known neurotoxin. If there's ex excess glyphosate, uh, Roundup, or, or mold toxicity, we know that all of these things can be neurotoxic. And we know that from the toxicology literature, but it doesn't really get applied to the neurology literature um, in a clinical setting. So a lot of this, the theme is it's common sense, but uncommon practice. Right, so what our goal is really to make this more the common practice. And, and so we take all of these variables, we measure them, and then we address them on an individual level. So instead of saying, because you have dementia, it's always beta amyloid plaques and tau proteins. And that if we get rid of those, you're gonna get better. Now that's this, the kind of, you, I guess you could say competing hypothesis is that beta amyloid plaques are the driver of this disease. And that if you remove the beta amyloid plaques, then you will get reversal of disease. Now, what we have found over and over and over again, after billions of dollars and decades of really smart people's time going into this, what we see is that when you remove beta amyloid plaques, you actually get a progression of disease. You get worsening of dementia. So that should tell us that maybe we're kind of looking at the wrong hypothesis. If the question was, does beta amyloid plaque really cause dementia, then what you would expect to find is that when you get rid of it, people get better. You would also expect that people with good cognitive function up over a hundred ha don't have beta amyloid plaques in their brain. Now that's also false. So there was a recent JAMA paper published that shows that they looked at Dutch centenarians. So people over a hundred. And uh, I think a third of the people in the study said that you, we could look at their brains for science after they passed away. And sure enough, all of these centenaries that they were studying had great cognitive function. And when they looked at their brains on autopsy, many of them had beta amyloid plaques, plenty of it that you would expect to be associated with disease if that hypothesis held true. Now, are amyloid plaques, do they have something to do with dementia? Sure, they probably do. Um, certainly the APOE genetics and kind of the mechanism there uh, seems to suggest that. There's a lot of things that suggest that there's certainly a connection However, when we try to use that as the primary intervention, we don't get results. And so to throw more billions of taxpayer dollars at this, and so this is leading into sort of this biogen, the FDA approval of the atacamia, that is, it's just depressing on so many levels to me. The goal there, again, it, it doubles down on this beta amyloid hypothesis, which is at best just misguided. It, slows disease progression when we know that there are things that can reverse disease. There is absolutely no hope of reversal with, with this drug. And the FDA, the way they approved it, they opened the door for many, many, many people to get it. And including people with highly progressed dementia, when the only potential benefit that's been shown, which even that is questionable, is with mild cognitive impairment. So what we've done is we have opened the door for Medicare, to, which will be most people who have shown 
amyloid in the brain. So it, it, it should be only available to people with shown amyloid. And I'm not even sure the FDA made that nuance clear, but there has to be amyloid present in order for this to even do what it actually does, which is decrease amyloid. The FDA has basically made this available to many, many people. It's made it so that Medicare essentially has to cover it. And it's $56,000 a year for this drug, just for the drug. Now, unfortunately, this drug also has side effects and the side effects include hemorrhages, micro hemorrhages in the brain and brain swelling, right? That can lead to confusion, which is not cognitive function. It's not cognitive enhancement when you have more confusion. So some of the side effect is that you can have more swelling in the brain, which is inflammation, right? Which is associated with more dementia. So the, the logic here is just absolutely insane to me. The complications, I guess some of the doctors are suggesting that the complications are not that bad, but they're expensive to manage, right? So now you need to be doing more studies, doing more workup to make sure that the side effects are not that big of a deal. So you have your $56,000 base price that Medicare will cover for the drug. And then on top of that, you have all the doctor's visits and all the workup to hopefully reduce the side effects of the drug. So the cost of this is just absolutely insane. Uh, what we budgeted for our participants in our study is $25,000 a year for aggressive intervention that actually, and our, our trial is not published yet, but Dr. Bredesen's data is that 84% of participants got reversal of disease. And then uh, I think it was 12% who had um, no progression in that nine month study period. So when we, when we weigh the cost benefit of this and with Dr. Bredesen's approach, we're getting balancing of blood sugar. So you're reducing diabetes, you're getting balancing of hypertension. So you're, you're reducing like the, the need for people to be on more medications. You're, you're improving sleep metrics. You're improving, you're improving health overall. So when we talk about seniors, they, the vast majority of healthcare dollars go to the last stages of life, right? To the, those later stages in life. And when, when we're talking about seniors and how to reduce the cost of healthcare, it, we have to totally rethink this, right? We're, we're talking about doubling down, putting more and more and more dollars into something that does not slow progression and only adds to the burden of, of disease by creating these side effects. So when we think about that, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm looking at kind of these more complex and wider problemscapes and how do we solve them? We're taking away from education, like primary and, and, and preschool education dollars when we do that. We're taking away from infrastructure dollars when we do this. We're taking away from so much else that could be beneficial uh, when we throw a bunch of money on something that really creates no value. What does your treatment look like? What, what to the program yeah. look like? Great question. So what it looks like is um, a pretty thorough workup in a similar way that I had described. So we're doing lots of labs and this means, but when we, when we say lots of labs, I'm not talking about just MRIs, although we do do a, a six minute MRI that out of pocket costs about $200, right? To look at how is the airway affected, a head and neck MRI with Dr. Lufkin. He's up at USC and is partnering with us on, on the study. So he is reading these studies, looking at airways, sinuses, dental infections, 
head trauma, and then of course hippocampal volume, kind of volumetrics, the way you would think of it for um, looking at, at disease process in the brain and, and also at vascular changes. So he's taking a, again, a more comprehensive look and we're doing a very practical, quick, non-contrast, no risk MRI to get in, out and track changes over time. So in terms of studies, we, you know, we want to look at things that are causal. So yes, I'm interested in cholesterol. Yes, I'm interested in thyroid. Yes, I'm interested in, in some of these downstream things. However, I'm really fascinated by where your nutrients, because nutrients and gut health, that is going to influence. Do you have the building blocks that you need to create the neurotransmitters that are associated with memory, to create the neurons associated with memory, to create the firing of those neurons that are necessary for brain function? So do you have everything that you need to make enough ATP, that fuel, that currency that our cells run on? We need enough of the building blocks so that that can happen. And if you're on a tea and toast diet, then you don't have that, right? So how can we increase the nutrients and looking at that and doing that through supplements, through changing diet, um, there's a health coach involved for everyone in, in these trials. So that partnership between health coaching, lifestyle coaching, and, uh, and, and certainly looking at the medicine and, and thinking about what, what, what medications, it's, we're not anti-medication. We're just saying, what are the medications that make sense for this particular person? So looking at gut health, nutrients, toxicity, I think of toxicity in three different flavors. We have heavy metals, mold toxicity or mycotoxins, and then um, our chemical toxins. So these are things like parabens, phthalates, exhaust fumes, pesticides, herbicides, plastics, and uh, glyphosate is another one, the one associated with Roundup, the active ingredient in Roundup. So we look at toxins, nutrients, structural issues. I always ask everyone about traumatic brain uh, history, whether it's car accidents or a history of playing football or getting hit over the head with a baseball bat, falling out of a tree. Any of these things are, are pretty important to understand and we can get healing even decades later. Toxins, nutrients, structure, that also includes that molecular structure. Uh, so if they have ApoE4, APP, any of these genetics that are associated with, um, with dementia, we want to know about that. Sometimes they have um, changes in how they metabolize fat. So we want to keep that in mind. Again, this is a very individualized approach, right? So it's not one intervention. It's asking the question, what is the path that you took to dementia? And how do we kind of re walk backwards on that path so that we can create brain health? So toxins, nutrients, structure hormones are a big piece of this. So is there hormonal signaling? This is sex hormones. So testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, DHEA, pregnenolone, cortisol, thyroid hormones, all of these hormones. You know, I think if we all, again, common sense, but uncommon practice are, if we think about who has the highest hormones, right? It's like these teenagers and, and people in their young twenties and they're getting that signal of youth, of new, of growth. And so they're getting the signal that, and, and neuroplasticity, right? Their, their brain is getting the signal that they can make new memories. They can wire new patterns. And so we want, we don't want that to go to zero, which is what happens naturally. So we just enhance it and certainly exercise enhances that as well. So these are the majority infectious burden is another piece. Now I typically address that a little bit later in the process that so we get rid of toxins. We balance nutrients. We do some of these other pieces first, but infectious burden cannot be underestimated. So pigeons that can be found in the mouth, dental issues, whether it's amalgams, the mercury amalgams or um, the pigeons or other infections, cavitations in the mouth can just proximity, right? It's just geography. Your mouth is pretty close to your brain. Sinus infections, 
can also affect cognitive function. Um, and then other infections like herpes, there is an epidemiological study out of Taiwan that aggressively treating herpetic outbreaks with the antivirals. Um, I definitely have become more of a fan of those antivirals, learning about how much they can trigger plaque formation and essentially inflammation in the brain. And they it, just like, you know, um, shingles, the, these things are, are stored in the neurological tissue. And so we, they can create this inflammatory process in the brain very quickly and easily, especially compared to some of the other microbes that might turn up in our bodies. So really important to address that. So that, that's a gist of the gist of what we're doing. So we have taken a very different approach. It's patient-centered, it's individualized. It's not cut and dry, one intervention. That's just not how the world works. That's not how the body works. It's, um, it, and what we've noticed is that the more comprehensive we can be, the better the outcomes. You're speaking about the research study you're implementing, which, which sounds complete. Uh, awesome. Uh, how are the patients in general um, who may, may or may not be in the study, how, how are they receiving it? You know, in that uh, age group, are they, you know, willing to, you know, change diet and do some of those things that sound relatively easy, but I, I guess if you're, you know, kind of stuck in your ways, I imagine those kinds of changes are, are still kind of difficult. This is such a great question. And this is actually why I created Marama, the residential care facility, because in my clinical practice, I was seeing that a lot of people were getting benefit, but the ones who were getting benefit were like Linda. They had a very enthusiastic partner who was doing all of the work. And we're talking about people with cognitive decline. So, I mean, it's hard for somebody my age to create big changes. I'm, I'm in my late thirties. I've got a two-year-old, you know, a, a life, a busy life. And if I go to change my diet, it takes work, right? It's how do I shop differently? Oh, I've got to look up new recipes. Like this all takes a lot of effort and energy and asking someone with full cognitive capacity, this is a big deal. Asking someone with decreased cognitive capacity, it's a non-starter. So they need support. So one of the criteria for our trial is that they have an affiliate or a caregiver who is fully committed to the process. Um, and th this is very challenging. So the people who I saw clinically before we started the trial that were not getting better were those who just did not have the capacity to implement at home. And so at Marama, we do that for you. The diet is there, the non-toxic environment is there, the exercises from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, the entire day is built around how can we support your brain through you know, some of the biohacking techniques or neurohacking techniques, um, like red light therapy, contrast oxygen therapy, but certainly lots of movement and, and brain stimulation. Uh, and then of course the diet and, and the caregivers and that, that engagement with caregivers and their peers is so, so, so important. And I think loneliness and, and sort of isolation is another big epidemic in, in our senior population. Um, it's an excellent question. How do you get people to do this? And the other kind of reason I did the trial, what I proposed doing this trial was because so many people asked, if I spend the time, if I spend this money, if I take the effort to do all this for my loved one, how likely is it to work? And I think that's a very, very reasonable question and, and, and quite a... Um, a compelling criticism for what I do, right? It's that there's not enough research. And unfortunately, you know, billions of dollars and decades of time get thrown at things that can turn around a massive profit. I mean, if you look at Biogen stock right now, and a lot of the conversation is around how much money that company is going to make. Lifestyle changes don't make people a lot of money. They don't get people rich. Now, uh, thank 
God, you know, fortunately, there are a lot of people who are very dedicated, the, the health coaches and, um, and really what I kind of to answer your question, um, a health coach is essential to this process. You can't just have a doctor and a way to keep the cost down is not paying a doctor's fee to talk about how to shop, how to cook, how to incorporate more exercise, how to hold people accountable. That really needs to happen with a health coach. Um, and so having them as an integrated part of a care team is, is essential. Hey, Dr. Sanderson, also, am I hearing properly? Is this a residential program? Is it inpatient or outpatient or a little both? Yeah, great question. So I have two businesses. One is the clinic. So North County Natural Medicine is my clinic where, and I've been seeing dementia patients here for the last five, six years. Um, and that's where we're doing the clinical trial. So this is a medical approach. And then Marama is a separate entity and it is an inpatient facility. It's now when I say inpatient is only for dementia patients, but they are a resident. So it's by definition in California, it's a residential care facility for the elderly. So what we do there is, is lifestyle inter, uh, intervention and an immersive experience in this lifestyle. Now the, the residents there who get the most benefit also have a Bredesen trained doctor who prescribes the supplements, prescribes medications like hormones or other things that might be helpful for cognitive function. And then our staff there helps to implement. So they make sure that they're on the right diet. They make sure they're getting organic, non-toxic foods that are high in good, high quality fats. Uh, we make sure that they're in a non-toxic environment. So we offer organic bedding, organic uh, mattresses. I'm hyper-vigilant about mold in the facility. Um, all of these kind of pieces that we've learned clinically, we apply there. Yeah, so it kind of takes the guesswork out of it. For a lot of people, kids with autism and, and you know, so I, I guess what I'm saying is I've seen so many, usually it's a daughter who is concerned about their, um, their loved one, their uncle or their mom or their dad who has dementia. And that daughter is often, I can always relate to her, you know, she's at the peak of her career, she's working really hard. She's, um, she's raising kids and then she's worried about her parents and she's so stretched. And the thought of trying to do this at home to train a caregiver who really has no idea, who's been told for years that fats are bad and that you know have, have more breads and pastas and this is a healthy diet. Well, it's not a brain healing diet. Um, and to have someone shift away from that and do these new things, you've got to manage them. And this daughter who comes in going like, wow, this sounds great. I see what you're saying. It all makes sense. But how do I do it? That's really who Marama speaks to. It's like, it's okay. We'll, we'll do it for you. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a big shift. I guess my question, you know, came a little from a personal experience also. Yeah, I, I get it on a personal level. Like, yeah, how do you, you know, change their paradigm about, you know, what they believe healthy foods are, you know, in their age group versus, you know, what, what uh, what's known, you know, with the new, newer research and things. So it sounds like a couple uh, excellent programs there. I'm uh, kind of a one trick pony. I'm an EEG person. Um, are, are you implementing any uh, neurofeedback, brain brightening approaches for the seniors or younger folks even? Yeah, you know, I'm so excited about neurofeedback and admittedly do not know enough. So we'll have to follow up and I'll have to pick your brain about how to do that. Um, what we are doing is measuring EEG data. So we're using the, the WAVI system. You're probably familiar with it. Um, 
but that had been validated and seemed to be kind of the best bang for our buck when we were designing the trial. So at both Marama and for our study participants, we're looking at um, baseline EEG data there. So our P300s, um, some brainwave ratios, and then uh, some some other metrics that again like I'm not the expert in this but we're certainly getting the data and I will learn more as we go through the process so we're looking at baseline and then every three months after that to track changes so we're looking at uh, MOCA's the WAVI EEG data and then Cambridge Brain Sciences as well as the NIH toolbox for measuring cognitive change and we do quite a bit of meditation we're not doing neurofeedback as of yet um, so we use the brain tap system that Patrick Porter put together. And then we also do the Kirtan Kira uh, meditation, the Satanama. It's a 12 minute uh, meditation that are uh, at, at the facility. So at Marama, we do the 12 minute meditation every single day with our, our, our residents, because that has really good data on reversing cognitive decline as well. Yeah, Heather, maybe it's a, a little bit of a diversion from where we're, where, where we are talking, but I don't know that this ever really occurred to me so clearly, but this is a show about neurofeedback, neuropsychology a little bit. The, the premise or a premise of neurofeedback is that the brain can, can retrain itself with you know, reinforcement. But it's always been um, kind of stuck in my mind that the brain kind of sees itself in a mirror and it's like, oh yeah, like I can, I can look like that with some training, uh, meaning it can heal itself, maybe, maybe strong words, but nonetheless, um, the the functional medicine naturopathic medicine kind of has that idea too that the body has the capacity to know what's right for it and i'm 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 hearing which i'm familiar with but i'm just kind of hearing this in a different way today that if we can get all of the influences out of the picture, meaning toxins and maybe an unhealthy diet, poor sleep habits, um, just un unhealthy lifestyle, in interpersonal relationships, et cetera, that if we can get those things out of there, which is no small task, but if we can help get them out of there, then the body can kind of get back to where it needs to, or at least begin to help itself. And I'm thinking two steps forward, one step back kind of progress right if we can get some of those things out there would, would you agree to have anything and, and again i'm just kind of tying together the neurofeedback piece and and maybe what you do yeah you know my my belief system um my religion if you will is that the body has this inherent divine design that is responsible for creating balance in this complex system and that it leans in the direction of health and if you get out excuse me then and you put the good stuff in then that's what will happen, right? We're standing in our own way. And again, like I, this is a societal problem, right? This has to do with the, with the farm bill and the fact that there's a high fructose corn syrup in, down every single aisle of the grocery store. I mean, this is, this is a, it happening in Washington. This is like, these are decisions that are being made that we don't realize. I was traveling this past weekend and I just, I'm used to my bubble here where I know where to shop and I know where to get my good food. And, and I went to naturopathic school and like learned to eat essentially. And when I go to the other places in the country, I just realized that like people still drink soda. They, it, I mean, we still consume these things that we know are so toxic and it, it's, it shocks me every time. I don't know why I feel like I should know better, but, um, I also, you know, I'm, I'm very interested, as you mentioned in um, Padunab, 
um, the Biogen, I've read it more than I've heard it, so I right. don't even know how to pronounce it. But this Biogen product um, that was recently FDA approved, when so I've, been, I've been listening to some of the podcasts and reading some of the people who are, are in support of it, because I want to understand, like, why are, they, why are they pushing this so hard? In there sometimes, it usually is at the very end of the article or at the very end of the podcast, like, oh, exercise actually has better data than anything else out there. But we don't tell people every single visit that they need to be exercising. Right. We don't create places where exercise is supported. And it's like, we know, again, it's this common sense, but uncommon practice. What we've done is we've created residential care facilities where people are discouraged from exercising, even though the best data for mental health, for bone health, for, for cognitive health, for, I mean, the, for diabetes, for heart disease, for the laundry list of things that affect seniors, the best data is exercise. And yet we create these places that discourage it. What? Like the, it's so backwards. And I think, you know, with neurofeedback, the, the philosophy is exactly the same. Our job is to support the system. Our, our job is to support healing. And, and our society does the opposite, but we're, we're kindred spirits. We're on the same page, yes. <laughs> and we yeah. need neurofeedback at Marama. All right, well, future conversations for sure there. By yeah, way of drawing some kind of a contrast, you don't have 20% approximately of your patients having brain swelling or brain bleeding. Uh, they don't end up having uh, small strokes. Um, you're, you're not charging them more than their annual income. Uh, 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 by comparison, you've got a benign intervention that doesn't have the downside that their intervention has. Plus, if I'm mild cognitive impairment, uh, the likelihood that I get to the doctor ends up being determined a to a large extent by what community I'm in. If, if I'm a Native American, I'm probably not going to see a doctor for mild cognitive impairment at all. Um, if I'm in a poor community that's underserved, I'm not going to be detected until I'm drooling. So um, the likelihood of this medication being given to anybody is that they're high income people that the doctor's tracking very closely and they're being served very, very well with traditional interventions. Uh, um, how many people does that fit? Uh, the, the, it's a 1%er fit. Uh, it's not a 98% fitter. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that um, our, our uh, government is oriented towards the uh, fixes for the elite, not something that is good for the general population. Because uh, I'll guarantee that there's a differential access uh, to, to these high-end medications. It's, it, it's not going to be handed out to the masses. It's going to be a one percenter fix. Or it'll bankrupt us. <laughs> Uh, and I, I just have to thank you guys for inviting me on because my purpose at this point is to change the narrative. So much of what prevents people from getting access is that they believe there's nothing that can be done. And maybe this week that what can be done is financially out of reach. And so to change the narrative so that people do get early intervention, so that they do get the correct information, so that they hear that if you're starting to notice that you're grasping for words you didn't, if your cognitive function is changing even a little bit, instead of being terrified and trying to hide it, 
go ask for help and ask someone for help who actually supports healing, who actually creates a program that's comprehensive enough to move the needle and that looks at the causal level pieces that incorporates the wisdom of lots of different traditions and and, um, and it can feel overwhelming, but there's a systematic way to do it, right? The, to get the neurofeedback, to get the dietary support, to get the exercise support. And the cost, the dollar the price tag on that is so much lower than certainly the Biogen product, but also than the demise that sort of awaits if there is no intervention. If, if it's possible, and, and I, I kind of threw it out there, the idea that the best treatment for cognitive decline at this point is is prevention, right? Like knowing these things rolling into our 20s, 30s, which I don't know, I didn't listen to anybody in my 20s. I barely did yesterday, you know, but but if we're about this message, can you speak to some things that are doable uh, in 20s, 30s, and 40s, right? That's and, and I guess I'm asking too, is that still the the thrust here that, hey, getting this right to start with is just better than trying to fix it at the end, right? Is that oh, my highest hope is that I work myself out of a job. So our goal is to make Alzheimer's a rare disease. And this is Dr. Bredesen's very stated goal. And I believe very, like my clinical experience has led me to believe very clearly that Alzheimer's is optional, that this is something like heart disease and diabetes. This is a lifestyle created disease that you do not have to suffer from. And there are decisions that you can make certainly early on that have a huge impact. Now it's much harder to prove uh, prevention than it is reversal. And so we have to do our work in the reversal space so that we can share it with people. You know, it is worth doing this earlier on. Now, what can you do in your twenties and thirties? Don't hit your head. Do not get a concussion, right? If you like, and for kids, I hope that um, moms and dads out there are really thinking about, you know, the football careers, um, that that is not a great idea. Soccer, even um, some of these sports that basically create head injuries, I I mean, avoid them. Um, Now, understanding your genetics so that you can work a little harder earlier on with this diet and lifestyle interventions fasting, um, intermittent fasting. So giving yourself at least three to four hours before going to sleep um, with no food, with no, no, um, nothing in your stomach so that you sleep better. Uh, dental hygiene, just think super on top of any sort of dental infections, dental caries that it has, a, a, I mean, changes the trajectory of your life. Huge. Sleep apnea, treating that aggressively and early. So whether it's wearing nose strips or mouth tape, or it doesn't necessarily mean a CPAP, but understanding your sleep risk, if you're not getting oxygen to your brain at night, you will cause dementia. So the dietary things, the lifestyle things, and, and the sleep apnea, I think we think of it as something that affects seniors, but it help, it affects people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. So aggressively intervene on that one. And what maybe it means weight loss, maybe it means a mouth guard, maybe it means nose strips, maybe it means mouth, mouth tape or... Um, or a CPAP for some people, or an APAP, kind of the Cadillac of CPAPs. It can be even more comfortable for some people. The sleep disorders aren't restricted to apneas uh, uh, as far as the negative impact on brain function. If you're not getting slow wave sleep, you end up having uh, less growth of the neurons. Your cells don't you know, recover from the wear and tear of the day adequately. Uh, that can happen with delayed circadian rhythm, restless leg syndrome. I mean, there, there are a lot of other kinds of sleep disorders than apnea that can end up having very negative impacts on. I was chatting a few weeks ago with one of the 
electroencephalographer, child neurologists, and th that's you know open to the neurofeedback world. And uh, we've noticed that in the last six months or so, we haven't seen many people have really good, stable vigilance regulation. People look like they're extremely fatigued, falling into deeper sleep states during brief testing. It's hard to find somebody that has a normal regulation of vigilance at this point. And we're not entirely sure uh, what the factors are that are in, involved. It could be the level of stress, free range uh, sleep because you don't have a schedule. Um, you know, having people basically stay up to watch the late night movie and, you know, not have a good circadian rhythm uh, impact. We don't know exactly why, but it, it, it looks like there's a general degradation of the quality of nocturnal sleep because people being tested during the day are not able to maintain a vigilant state. And uh, uh, that it, it appears to be uh, a, a broad impact. We're not sure um, and, and, you know, I've got historic data I can go back and look through and I see people staying awake during the testing. So it's, it's not just, you know, observation bias. Oh, I just learned about vigilance regulation. So now I'm seeing vigilance regulation problems. Uh, the, uh, I was lecturing about vigilance stuff 20 years ago. So it's not, it's not a, a new phenomenon, but it, it's a new observation. Things appear to be getting worse for people sleep at night. That might be uh, a good segue to having Mike Cohen on, Jay, um, talking about EMFs and, and that type of influence, which is obviously you know increased in the last 20 years too. Not that it's totally causal, but maybe relational, right? Maybe there's something there with the prevalence of devices and such. Again, not looking for the silver bullet, but. Well, Dr. Sanderson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for helping me live my purpose by getting the word out about uh, the hope for Alzheimer's. Hey, we're all in this together, right? Get, get the client better, do no harm, right? Exactly. Don't charge 60 grand for brain bleeds. We didn't even get to the DSM yet. <laughs> Doctor, let's plug your websites again. Let's make sure we get it right. It's Marama Experience. You nailed it. Marama, M-A-R-A-M-A experience.com. North County natural medicine.com. Is that correct? Okay. That's exactly right. Okay, great. We'll have, we'll have the links in the podcast notes below. And we thank everybody for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast. Again, the in, all the contact info and I scribble about four pages of notes. I'll try to get it all in the notes below. Please somebody fact check me. Idea for a topic, please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon. Cue the music.